Hey, just a note. I'm so excited to announce that Method and Madness is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. This festival is for you, the listeners, and is designed around your desire to mingle and interact with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Check out all the details at truecrimepodcastfestival.com, including info on how to get tickets and hotel reservations. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I hope to see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. A man selling a pickup truck takes two potential buyers out for a test drive and never returns home. What follows is a frantic search for a beloved man, husband, and father, but turns into a homicide investigation. This is Method and Madness, Episode 40, The Murder of Tim Bosma. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. It was no different than posting an ad in the old days in your local paper or stapling a flyer on the bulletin board of your grocery store. As ordinary as life in a digital age can be, it's just that now we're posting or purchasing online from sites like Craigslist or AutoTrader or Facebook Marketplace. Sometimes communicating exclusively through a messenger, even to a cautious, safety-conscious consumer, It's an avenue for items that are hard to find, gently used, or even free, where you can establish your own personal policy. Maybe it's that transactions have to be in cash, or payment is required up front, or in order to exchange goods for payment, you make sure to meet in a public place. A 2021 article in Reader's Digest said that more than 1 billion users buy or sell goods on Facebook Marketplace each month. So when Tim Bosma wanted to sell his used truck in 2013, he turned to online marketplaces AutoTrader and Kijiji. It was a no-brainer. Let's dive in. Ancaster, a suburb of Ontario, is described as a historic town with a population of just over 40,000 in 2020. And it was there that Tim Bosma would last be seen alive. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Tim Bosma was born on August 12, 1980, to Hank and Mary, and grew up in Ancaster with his sisters, Michelle, Jen, and Stephanie. Tim went to Calvin Christian School and Ancaster High before attending Mohawk College. He was very social, 
with lots of friends and played the role of best man in some of their weddings. He's been described as someone who loved anything with an engine and on weekends could be seen with his buddies riding dirt bikes and snowmobiles through the rural fields of Ancaster. At the age of 28, he created a profile on eHarmony, where he ended up meeting his soulmate, Charlene. They had their first date in November 2008, and a year later, Tim proposed. They got married on February 13, 2010, and then had a baby girl, a cousin, for Tim's many nieces and nephews. Tim built their dream home on a plot of land in Ancaster, and by 2013, life was good for the couple, their daughter, and their great Dane. And Tim and Charlene were going to try for their second baby. By now, Tim was 32 years old, an active member of the local Reformed Church, working as a contractor, and being a hands-on dad to his and Charlene's two-year-old. The family was planning to sell their home soon and move to nearby Brantford, and one item on their to-do list was to sell their 2007 black Dodge Ram 3500 pickup truck. It was constantly breaking down. And so, on April 26, 2013, Tim and Charlene listed their truck for sale, $24,000, on AutoTrader and Kijiji, a Canadian classified ad website. A man called Tim on May 4th, inquiring about the truck and to arrange a test drive for the following Monday, May 6th. The prospective buyer and his friend would meet Tim at his home to check out the vehicle and take it for a drive. When Monday evening came around, the men were late to arrive at the Bosma home and Tim was getting a little impatient as he paced his halls, waiting. He found it odd that they were coming so late to test drive, but he was motivated by wanting to make the sale. And so after 9 p.m. that night, Tim finally got a call. The men were about to arrive. He walked outside to meet them in his driveway. It was about 55 degrees with some passing clouds that spring night, and he was dressed in jeans, a long-sleeved tee, and work boots. Inside his garage, his wife Charlene and their tenant, Wayne DeBoer, who rented the basement apartment, were having a cigarette. Tim asked Charlene, when the guys show up, should I go with them? To which she replied, yes, because we want the truck to come back to us. Just then, they heard two sets of footsteps walking up the long gravel driveway from the road. Two men appeared on foot, and Tim told them that they could have parked in the driveway. There were two young, white men, probably in their 20s. The taller of the two said that a friend had dropped the pair off and had then gone to Tim Hortons. Wayne, the Bosma's tenant, noticed that the tall one doing the talking was handsome, confident, while the shorter one was, quote, sketchy, not engaging, while he hung back, his hands inside the pockets of his large hoodie. The two men took a look at Tim's truck, did a walk around, and then got into the vehicle to begin their test drive. The taller man in the driver's seat, Tim in the passenger seat, and the shorter man in the back seat. Tim told Charlene with a smile he'd be right back, and the truck pulled out of the driveway. 
It was sort of an awkward few moments, and Wayne joked to Charlene that that may be the last time they see him. Sure enough, Tim Bosma never returned. Around 10.15 that night, while Wayne was in his apartment watching a hockey game, he received a text from Charlene. Tim hadn't come back yet, and she was getting worried. He wasn't answering his phone or returning her texts. Remembering that the men had mentioned something about Tim Hortons, Wayne decided to drive over there to see if he could locate Tim or the truck. But there was no sign of them. While still communicating with Charlene, Wayne drove around for a bit but still couldn't find any signs of Tim or the two men he had seen in the driveway. When he returned back home, Charlene was panicked. She wanted to go for a drive herself to see if she could find her husband. Wayne stayed back to watch the Bosma's daughter while Charlene drove to a local bar, hoping maybe the men had ended up there. By this time, her calls to Tim's phone were going straight to voicemail, and she'd called the police. You can only imagine being in this terrifying situation. Your loved one leaves the house for what should be about a 10-minute meeting. They don't return. Charlene's mind must have been racing as she imagined all of the possible scenarios. Best case scenario, the guys got to talking and lost track of time. But when Tim wasn't responding, wasn't answering his phone, the scenarios would have gotten worse with each passing minute. It's likely she considered the most positive outcomes, like a minor accident or a breakdown, something that would prevent Tim from returning quickly. But nothing positive could account for why he wasn't calling, why he wasn't responding. Was his phone deliberately shut off? and the dread that he was out at night with two men, two total strangers. The Hamilton Police Department took Charlene's concerns seriously as they met her outside that local bar. Two men who inquire about a vehicle that they find online, show up to your house, leave with your husband, and none of them return? Suspicious circumstances, for sure. And there was nothing about Tim Bosma or his history that indicated he walked away from his family. Charlene provided descriptions of Tim, of the truck, and of the two men she saw her husband leave with. She didn't have their contact info. All communication had been done through her husband, and he'd left the home with his phone. The two men were described as follows. Male one was white, 6'1 to 6'2, 170 to 180 pounds, mid-20s, light to medium short brown hair, unshaven, wearing blue jeans, a long-sleeved orange shirt, and running shoes. Male two was white, 5'9 to 5'10, small to medium build, early to mid-20s, dark hair with a red hoodie, the hood up over his head. The following day, Hamilton police officially declared Tim Bosma a missing person. Friends and family members of Tim and Charlene set up camp at the Bosma home. They didn't have a ton of info to go on. They knew the men had headed north in the pickup truck and that Tim's phone had been turned off within a mile from home. Missing person flyers were made, and Tim's family were desperate for the public's help 
while they coordinated searches, before being told by police to hold off on searching as potential evidence could be ruined. One of Tim's childhood friends managed all social media, including Facebook posts with the missing person flyer and details about Tim and what he was wearing, as well as what the truck looked like, in hopes that if someone saw it, that would lead to Tim. The Hamilton Police Department held a news briefing, and members of Tim's family spoke and pleaded with the public to assist in finding him. They described Tim as loving, a wonderful husband and father, and again provided details on what his truck looked like, urging people to make contact if they saw it. And they pleaded with whoever had Tim to make an anonymous tip. In a heartbreaking, emotional display, Charlene Bosma spoke, introduced herself, and referred to Tim as her husband, best friend, and father of her child. She described how what she was experiencing didn't feel like real life. It felt like what happened in movies and on TV. She, too, begged for whoever had Tim to let him go and said, It was just a truck. The hearts of all watching her speak instantly ached as people felt for her. The missing persons flyers were posted all over Ontario, and there was an outpouring of love and support for the Bosma family as the story spread throughout Canada and worldwide. You couldn't turn on the news or go on social media without seeing Tim's face. Around the corner from the Bosmas' home lived a man named Rick Bowman, who phoned in a tip. The night that Tim had gone missing, he saw a truck similar to the one described as Tim's. It had pulled out of a field across the street from Rick's home, and as he walked his dog, he watched it and a GMC Yukon following behind it, as both vehicles drove off into the night. Now, the police were also on the lookout for the Yukon. On Wednesday, May 8th, Arthur Jennings, an employee of Millard Air, an aviation company located in Waterloo, Ontario, reported to work. And inside an airport hangar, found a pickup truck that was identical to the one that was all over the news. The truck of missing man, Tim Bosma. Arthur took a look inside. The interior was stripped, with only the rear seat nearby on a green tarp. He wondered to himself if this was the truck. If it was, what was it doing here? He wasn't sure what to do and got busy with the day's tasks, working on a trailer for his boss, but at the same time wondering if his boss had something to do with Tim Bosma's disappearance. He felt torn. When he got home later that day, Arthur spoke to his wife about what he saw. The next day, Thursday, May 9th, Arthur returned to the airport hangar and again examined the truck. He took photos of it and of its VIN number, and finally, he called Crime Stoppers. He asked the operator if they could confirm it was the truck of Tim Bosma. Arthur was told to call back in 45 minutes, and when he did, the operator confirmed the news he dreaded, and they asked where the truck was located. But Arthur hung up the phone and went into shock as he walked over to his own truck and vomited 
before composing himself and getting back to his work. The next day, May 10th, the truck was gone. And it was then that Arthur called the police to inform them what he knew. That same day, Charlene Bosma got a call from Tim's phone. It wasn't her husband, however. It was someone who had found Tim's phone on a lawn in an industrial park in Brantford, about 16 miles from the Bosma home. With the phone located, law enforcement was able to pull up Tim's call records in hopes of figuring out what happened and where Tim was. Of course, the first thing police wanted to know was who had called Tim about the truck, the men that Tim was last seen with. Records showed that on Monday, May 6th at 5.13 p.m., Tim's phone made a call to a burner phone, one that was purchased by a man named Lucas Bate. At 7.22 p.m., the burner phone contacted Tim's phone, and at 9.04 p.m., it called Tim's phone. Now, if the police could find Lucas Bate, they may have their suspect. They attempted to obtain video footage from a gas station where the burner phone was purchased by a Lucas Bate, but there was no available footage. The address provided when the phone was purchased was 350 Kipling Avenue, Etobicoke, Ontario. It turned out to be the address of Lakeshore Collegiate Institute, and no Lucas Bate attended the school. But then, a crucial tip came in from a business owner in Toronto who said one day before Tim went missing, two men had test-driven his truck and that they were, quote, suspicious. The business owner provided another detail regarding the possible suspects. One of them had a tattoo on his wrist that said, Ambition. Working with local police officers, investigators were given the name of a Toronto man that had a tattoo that matched the description given by that business owner. The man with the ambition tattoo was identified as 27-year-old Dellen Millard of Toronto. It was time to talk to him. On Saturday, May 11th, that's five days after Tim was last seen. Dellen Millard was at his business, an airplane hangar in Waterloo, meeting with his accountant. Yes, that same hangar where an employee had found Tim Bosma's truck. Two Hamilton police officers arrived there and questioned him, an interaction that Dellen later described as almost friendly. They asked him if he knew about Tim going missing and general questions about Dellen's friends and acquaintances, and they noticed he bore a tattoo with the word ambition. During part of their conversation, Dellen took a satchel from an office and slung it over his shoulder, a detail that we'll revisit later. Later that same day, Dellen was driving home when he was rear-ended. He got out of the car and was faced with multiple law enforcement officers in plain clothes, pointing guns at him. He was arrested and charged with robbery and forcible confinement for Tim's disappearance. But there were still no answers leading to Tim's whereabouts. The next day was Sunday, Mother's Day, 
And Tim's mom, Mary, made a public, tearful plea for the safe return of her son. And it was that day that Tim's truck was finally located on the Kleinberg, Ontario property of Madeline Burns, Dellen Millard's mother. It was found by police inside a trailer located in her driveway. Meanwhile, police were searching Dellen Millard's properties for evidence or any sign of Tim Bosma. Finally, on May 14, 2013, eight days after he went missing, police confirmed what was already feared, that Tim was dead. Remains found in the region of Waterloo were identified as his, and he had been burned beyond recognition. A day after Tim's remains were located, his distraught wife Charlene spoke to the press saying that she was, quote, broken, and that she and Tim's two-year-old daughter needed her mommy more than ever. She thanked the Hamilton Police Department for finding her husband and thanked the media for keeping Tim's name alive. Dellen Millard was now being charged with first-degree murder as law enforcement continued to work off tips that they were receiving and continued collecting more evidence and investigating other possible suspects. What turned the case from a missing person investigation to a murder investigation was a finding on Dellen Millard's property, a device, an incinerator, that he called the Eliminator. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash methodandmadness. That's betterhelp.com slash methodandmadness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Denise, tell me a story. There once was a serial killer. Is this for real? Oh, yes, Zelda. This is for real. Murderous Roots, a podcast dedicated to tracing the tangled ancestry of the terrifying. We all come from somewhere. New episodes come out every other Wednesday. You can find Murderous Roots at MurderousRoots.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. I had the pleasure of meeting with Denise from Murderous Roots recently. She was kind enough to look into Dirty John's family tree for me. Remember him and how he said he was a descendant of infamous mafia boss Albert Anastasia? Well, 
Denise took a quick look into John's ancestry, and it doesn't look like he had any ties to Albert Anastasia, but she's going to go do a deep dive and cover it on a future episode of her podcast, Murderous Roots. Thank you, Denise. Tim Bosma's funeral was held on May 22nd with hundreds attending. Meanwhile, the case against Dellen Millard was building as more evidence was collected. Police were confident that Tim had been targeted and killed shortly after driving off with the two men on the night of May 6th. But the other man, Dellen Millard's partner, hadn't yet been publicly identified. With the news that there was an arrest, the public wanted to know who was Dellen Millard and what was his motive. The more that was unveiled, the more puzzling this case would become. Born August 30th, 1985 and raised in Toronto, Dellen was the only child of parents Wayne and Madeline who were divorced. His father, Wayne, had died in 2012 by suicide and was the CEO of Canadian aircraft maintenance company Millard Air, which he had inherited from his own father, Carl, the founder of Millard Air, which was at one time a charter airline. Carl was the grandfather to Dellen Millard. Dellen attended Toronto French School but dropped out without getting his high school diploma since reportedly none of his teachers were very interesting. At his parents' urging, he went on to receive his diploma from an alternative school, Subway Academy. After worldwide interest in the case emerged, so did photos of the suspect. Online, Dellen was depicted as the headline-grabbing playboy millionaire an heir to a fortune, with tattoos that spelled ambition and don't you dare forget. At the age of 14, he became the youngest Canadian to fly solo in both a helicopter and an airplane on the same day. One article in the Hamilton Spectator described Dellen as sort of tinkering with career aspirations from culinary arts to animation to cosmetology even. He bought a few houses with interest in flipping them, and Dellen seemed focused on wanting to appear normal, with quotes like, I shop at Costco, I don't buy expensive clothes, I'm a bargain hunter, I have one Hugo Boss suit. With his father's death, Dellen had inherited the family fortune and owned several properties, including the childhood home he had bought for $1.1 million from his father in 2007, plus sprawling farmland north of the Waterloo Hangar. Still, speculation was mounting. Why would this rich young man commit murder over a pickup truck? If he needed a truck, why not just buy one? If he had the urge to steal, why commit a murder? That would be the mystery that would continue to haunt Tim Bosma's loved ones. We'll get to some theories in a bit. On May 22nd, police arrested the second suspect in Tim's disappearance, Dellen Millard's friend, 25-year-old Mark Smitch from Oakville, Ontario. Mark started out as Dellen's pot dealer. The two became friends and then partners in crime of sorts, stealing things like construction equipment. Mark had been riding his bike when police tackled him to the ground. His girlfriend, who was walking alongside him, was also apprehended, 
but later released after cooperating with police. An aspiring rapper raised in a middle-class family, Mark's record wasn't exactly squeaky clean. He was born August 13, 1987, and had a criminal history that included drug possession, driving while impaired, and vandalizing a highway overpass. With the two men last seen with Tim Bosma now in custody, a narrative was beginning to develop as to what happened leading up to, during, and after the senseless murder. This is what police and prosecutors would say had happened. Dellen and Mark had been on the hunt for a specific pickup truck, ideally a Dodge, bonus points if it were red. Text messages between the pair outlined a plan to obtain the truck before Dellen was to, quote, go to the States. It was alleged that they wanted to steal a diesel-powered 3,500 pickup truck to replace a gas-powered one that Dellen already owned. He needed to tow his large trailer and souped-up Jeep down to Mexico for the off-road desert race known as the Baja 500. It seemed he intended on painting the stolen truck red and switching out the VIN to make it appear that it was still his truck. Having a diesel truck would have been more cost-efficient than using his gas-powered truck. The plan seemed to begin via text more than a year earlier, in February of 2012, and also included messages indicating the two men were working on Mark Smitch's rap album. Here's a sample of some of the text messages the two exchanged. On October 8th, 2012, Mark texted Dellen, Yo, 3500 me negro, lol. It's all about me, you, myself, and my greed get TXD'd. We be taking anything we need, that means everything indeed. Nice rhyme, Dellen had texted back. The two also displayed a fascination with guns, with texts like this one from Dellen, along with a photo of 10 bullets. Five-fingered you some practice ammo. It just so happened that they came across the very pickup they were after in the spring of 2013, well, aside from the color. After contacting Tim Bosma about test-driving his truck, Mark and Dellen had driven Dellen's blue Yukon and parked it around the corner from the Bosma's home. Dellen made up a story about being dropped off by a friend, and the three got into Tim's truck and drove off, Dellen at the wheel, Tim in the passenger seat. Police were sure that Tim was shot at point-blank range inside the truck just minutes after the three left his home. After the murder, Dellen drove Tim's truck and Mark followed behind in the GMC Yukon. They headed to Dellen's farm, where Tim's body was loaded into the Eliminator, a 6,000-pound animal incinerator that Dellen had purchased for $15,000. Dellen told some people that he had it because he was going to get into the business of pet cremation. He told his girlfriend, however, that it was to burn metals for an aviation company he was starting. From there, the two drove the vehicles again with the incinerator in tow to the Millard Air Hangar in Waterloo where they stripped the truck and cleaned up the crime scene, 
They were there until about 7 a.m. the next morning, according to video surveillance. Throughout the night, Dellen had been texting his girlfriend, Christina Nudga, about a, quote, mission he needed to take care of. It was an all-nighter. Christina, one of the many women Dellen was seeing, was allegedly unaware of what exactly the mission was. She'd offered to help, but Dellen had turned her down. A few days later, on May 9th, Dellen took Christina up on her offer, and she accompanied him on a ride to his mother's home, where he was towing a large trailer. Inside was, you guessed it, Tim's truck. According to Christina, she was still in the dark about what exactly was going on and didn't ask any questions on the drive as she was giving her boyfriend a, quote, lengthy sexual favor while he was driving. Once they arrived at Dellen's mother's home, she, Madeline, had come outside and asked what he was doing, why he was leaving a trailer in her driveway. But Dellen brushed her off and told her it would just be for a few days. After leaving the trailer with Tim's truck inside, Dellen and Christina drove back to the Waterloo hangar. And there, while wearing gloves, they rearranged some things and switched vehicles. Next, they drove to Dellen's farm and loaded the incinerator onto the trailer and towed it from the barn into a wooded area. Police later found it on a tree-lined path, and inside, some charred remains of Tim Bosma, as well as scattered remains on the property. Christina would later say she thought that they were moving the incinerator because, according to Dellen, the weight of it was affecting the barn's floorboards. After moving the incinerator, the couple took a toolbox to a friend, Matt Hagerman. Inside was allegedly the gun used to kill Tim. Again, Christina said that she didn't know what was in the toolbox. Finally, Dellen handed Christina a recording of security footage taken of him and Smitch at the Waterloo hangar from the night of the murder. She held on to the recording for a year apparently with no idea what it contained until she too was arrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact. After Dellen's arrest, his mother Madeline Burns along with Christina wiped down the trailer of fingerprints left in Madeline's driveway. According to Christina, it was because she didn't want to be connected to a crime, since at that time, Tim was still just a missing person. But when the police finally located Tim's truck, they found gunshot residue and blood on both the inside and outside of the vehicle. Dellen's fingerprints were found inside the truck and on one shell casing. Some of Tim's bones had been found in the incinerator as well as a tooth. And after his arrest... Tim's keys were found inside one of Dellen's vehicles. Over the next several months, while in jail awaiting trial, Dellen reportedly tried to manipulate Christina and, in turn, manipulate the outcome of the upcoming trial. He was forbidden from contacting her as she was out on bail from her charge of accessory, but he found ways to communicate to keep her under his thumb. In November 2013, from jail, 
Dellen was on the phone with his mother when she passed the phone to Christina in secret. Dellen sang Wonderwall to her. He also wrote her tons of letters, which were later located in Christina's home and presented at trial. In the letters, he went on and on about how he was smarter than everyone else and referred to Christina as his secret agent. He was mostly worried about the testimony his friend and roommate, Andrew Mikowski, was going to give at the murder trial. Andrew knew too much about the plans to steal the truck. And Dellen wanted Christina to use her cunning ways to get to Andrew and get him to tell the same story that Dellen was telling authorities. In two interviews conducted from jail with the Toronto Star, Dellen denied any involvement in Tim Bosma's murder and said, quote, No, I didn't do it. They might as well accuse me of having been to the moon. There's nothing real about it. Dellen was going to point all the blame at his partner and lapdog, Mark Smitch, and Mark was going to point all blame at Dellen. Dellen's defense was going to say that their client was wealthy and had no motive to steal a truck, and that it was Mark Smitch who was responsible for Tim's death, that it was Mark who had brought the gun to the test drive that night, unbeknownst to Dellen that during the test drive, Mark had pulled out the gun and said, we're taking the truck, followed by a struggle in which the gun went off, killing Tim. Mark's motive? To receive a Cadillac, which was promised to him by Dylan if he helped him steal a Dodge pickup. The Crown was going to present in court that Dylan Millard was motivated by financial desperation, mounting debt, which led to a botched robbery and murder. The picture being painted was of two men with no regard for others, no regard for the law, that were motivated by greed, a partying lifestyle, and an overall view that they were untouchable. CBC reporter Adam Carter reported daily from the courtroom when the murder trial began on February 1st, 2016. Dellen opted not to take the stand, but Mark Smitch would. Both men had entered a plea of not guilty. Tim's family was there to hear every disturbing detail, and Charlene Bosma was there each day mustering the strength not to lunge at her husband's killers. Dellen and Mark were definitely sketchy characters with sketchy histories, but criminal masterminds they were not. They left trails and trails of evidence despite their attempts at cleaning it all up. As we go through some of the evidence at the trial, you'll see how, from a cover-up point of view, these two made a ton of mistakes, which I'm glad because obviously it got them caught, but what's surprising is how many people were indirectly involved. These guys left both physical and digital evidence behind, a ton of it. And we'll go through some of it. So, the mounting evidence against Dylan Millard included the following. His cell phone pinged off of the same towers that the phone that called Tim Bosma had pinged off of on May 6th. Remember, Dylan had used a burner phone to make the calls to Tim, but apparently hadn't thought to turn off his own cell phone 
to prevent it from tracking his location. And we know that he was in contact with his girlfriend throughout the night. Texts that Dellen sent his employees the day after Tim went missing said, quote, Airport politics. No one goes to the hangar today, not even just to grab something. Remember that Millard Air employee that found Tim's truck in the hangar and called Crime Stoppers? His son-in-law, Shane, also worked at Millard Air, and texts between him and Dellen were read by the jurors. On May 9th, three days after Tim went missing, Dellen texted Shane, quote, I can't stop thinking about what that family's going through. I want to take it back, but I'm a little concerned how that's going to play out. Shane's response was, quote, Yeah, that's a tough call, man. Have you considered going to the cops? Tell him you bought this truck, but you think it's warm. Dellen's response, quote, Hypothetically, if this is the same one, I'm in a lot of jeopardy. What truck? When asked why Dellen would say, what truck, Shane testified that he assumed Dellen was playing dumb. Otherwise, the Millard Air employee never thought to call police as he believed Dellen didn't have anything to do with Tim Bosma's disappearance, just he innocently purchased a stolen truck and was feeling guilt about it. It was Shane that also identified Dellen Millard and Mark Smish as the two individuals caught on security video inside the airport hangar just hours after Tim went missing. And Shane told the court what the purpose of the eliminator was. As far as he knew, it was to quickly and cheaply get rid of garbage on Dellen's property. Some more evidence. A man who went by the name Evan had been inquiring about similar trucks in the days before Tim's disappearance. Now, Evan is Dellen's middle name. And the man who had arranged for at least one other test drive, the one named Evan, had a tattoo that said Ambition, which we now know matched Dellen's tattoo. Photos of Tim's truck were shown in court, specifically those that were taken inside the Waterloo Airport hangar by Dellen's employee with a close-up view showing the VIN number confirming it was his. A man named Igor Tumanenko testified that on May 5th, he too had given a test drive to two men. This was one day before Tim went missing. Igor had a Dodge Ram pickup, and while inside the truck with the two prospective buyers, he'd mentioned that he was familiar with diesel engines from his time in the Israeli army. He said on the witness stand that it was at this point that the dynamic in the truck changed, and the buyers told him that the price was a little out of their budget. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. If the motive was to steal a truck nearly identical to the one that Dellen already owned— what prevented him from stealing Igor's? Was it the mention of him being in the Israeli army? Did that somehow earn respect in some messed up way from Dellen? Or did it instill fear in him and he had second thoughts? It's been alleged that it had to do with Igor's size. Apparently, he was a larger man, and theories are that he wouldn't have fit into the incinerator. Tony DiCiano, a body shop owner, testified that he received a phone call on May 8, 2013, from Dellen Millard, who was looking to arrange a rush paint job. 
He needed a black truck painted red, but later called back and canceled the request. Jurors were able to read texts between Dellen and Matt Ward Jackson, who the defendant had purchased a gun from. Marlena Manessas, who was dating Mark Smitch at the time of Tim's murder, testified that she saw Mark and Dellen on the morning of May 7th and that the two seemed giddy, that a mission they had performed was a success. After Dellen was arrested, she asked Mark what was going on, to which he responded, Tim Bosma was, quote, gone, gone. After pressing him for details, Mark said that Dellen had shot Tim during the test drive, but he never gave a reason why. So Marlena testified that Dellen shot Tim. Much of the trial, though, was going to rely on how credible Mark Smitch was as a witness. His story was that he was shocked when Dellen suddenly shot Tim during the test drive. He had no idea it was going to happen. He was only there to help his friend steal a truck. While Mark took the stand, the jury, along with Tim Bosma's family, were about to hear what would be the closest thing to a moment-to-moment account of what happened to Tim the night of his murder. Mark stuck to his story that he had helped Dellen look online for potential trucks for sale, and if all had gone well the night of May 6, 2013, they would return to the Bosma home later and steal the truck from the driveway. During the test drive, Mark said, Dellen was at the wheel and Tim was in the passenger seat. Dellen had suddenly stopped the truck near where the pair had left Dellen's GMC Yukon. Remember, it was around the corner from Tim's house. At this point, Mark says, Dellen told him to get out and to go meet up with that imaginary friend that had dropped the two men off and had then driven to Tim Hortons. Mark said at the time he just played along. He was confused as to what Dellen's plan was. So Mark got out of the truck and into Dellen's Yukon. He followed behind the pickup truck when suddenly it swerved and then came to a stop on the side of the road. Dellen then emerged from the truck looking like what Mark referred to as a lunatic. He had a satchel over his shoulder and then placed a gun inside of it before grabbing a flashlight from the Yukon and saying, I'm taking the truck. Remember earlier, we mentioned that when Hamilton police first interviewed Dellen at his hangar, he had grabbed a satchel from his office and put it over his shoulder. Mark then described approaching the truck and seeing a bullet hole and a lot of blood with Tim's body hunched over, his head on the dash. As he described the murder, Tim's mother ran out of the courtroom while his widow Charlene cried. Following the murder, Mark described being terrified of Dellen and helping him cover up the crime out of fear for his own life. The pair drove to Dellen's farm near Waterloo, and Mark was instructed to put Tim's body into the incinerator, which, according to him, he refused to do as he had injured his shoulder. Dellen loaded Tim's body into the incinerator, which was loaded onto a trailer and then hooked to Tim's truck. Next, Dellen drove Tim's truck with the incinerator in tow, with Mark driving behind in the Yukon. 
the two men went to the Waterloo Airport hangar, where Dallin then turned on the incinerator with Tim's body inside. Neighbors nearby also testified about seeing smoke coming from the property that night. Mark was then told to clean up the truck and to strip it, which he did. Photos of Mark taken before the murder holding the gun, a semi-automatic handgun, the apparent weapon used to kill Tim, were shown to the jury. When asked where that gun was now, Mark responded that he had buried it in a forest but wasn't exactly sure where. No matter how the question was asked, Mark was firm that he had no idea what forest it was and that he was still in shock. And remember, there was other evidence that Dellen and his girlfriend had brought the gun to a friend. A man named Chaz Main testified that he was riding a dirt bike in the woods when he came across what he later learned was the Eliminator. He led the police to it, which was where they found Tim's partial remains inside. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Tracy Rogers testified regarding Tim's remains that were found in the incinerator. She told the jury, quote, There are a lot of remains that are not there. There should have been a complete body there, but basically there wasn't. So obviously it had been cleaned out at some point. She'd done her best to get as much of Tim's remains as possible for the family, but what they received was a small container the size of a shoebox. Text messages between Dellen and his gun dealer, which could prove that the accused had the intent to kill, considering he asked if a gun he wanted to buy was clean or dirty. Those were read by the jury. Now, asking if a gun was clean or dirty is really only something you'd be concerned with if you were planning on using the weapon. Dellen's roommate, Andrew Mikowski, the one that Dellen had tried to manipulate his girlfriend into talking to, well, he testified that on May 4th, Dellen showed him a picture of the truck on Kijiji and asked Andrew if he should, quote, steal the truck. On May 7th, Dellen told him he'd stolen a truck and at under cross-examination, Andrew described what it was like to be in Dellen's circle, playing the video game Halo for several hours a day, holding barbecues at Dellen's home where it was a requirement that there be two girls for every guy in attendance. And it was at these parties that Dellen would present a toolbox which held drugs he'd hand out like favors to his guests. Dellen had a fascination with cars and had several he kept in the hangar in Waterloo, some that he'd inherited from his late father. And Andrew described Dellen's interest in racing at the Baja 500 in Mexico. As mentioned earlier, in order to get Dellen's souped-up Jeep down to Mexico, he needed a diesel truck to tow it. It was cheaper than getting it down there via a gas-powered truck. The previous year, he and his friends had used their gas-powered truck and it had been a pricey endeavor, and Tim's truck was diesel. A former employee of Millard Air testified that Dellen was a rich, nice guy, and he wouldn't think he'd have anything to do with Tim's disappearance. He also said under oath that Dellen had texted him three days after Tim went missing to say he felt sympathy for what the Bosma family was going through. 
Now, if Dylan was responsible for Tim's disappearance and murder, what do you think about him texting an employee that? Was it, in a sense, his arrogance? The actions of a man who thought he was so untouchable that he could send text messages showing sympathy toward a family that he directly harmed just because? Was it his way of reliving the crime, in a sense? If he engages in a conversation about it, gets others to talk about it, does he feel a certain thrill? Or did he naively think that it would make him look innocent if he expressed sympathy? Or was he just a spoiled kid that had no grip on reality, that he truly had no clue the traces of evidence he was leaving? Dellen's girlfriend, Christina, who had helped him cover up evidence, was deemed unlikable by those in attendance at the trial. She had arrived and departed from court covered in scarves and dark glasses and on the stand gave vague answers like, I don't remember and I can't recall, met with groans and annoyed laughter. When asked about the recording that she kept in her room that Dellen had given her, she claimed she never watched it and that it never piqued her curiosity even after he was arrested. After the jury deliberated, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch were found guilty on June 17, 2016, of first-degree murder. And Charlene Bosma celebrated by popping champagne with friends and family at home. She has since set up Tim's Tribute, a charity designed to help other families who have lost a loved one to homicide. And she credits her Christian faith for getting her through the horrifying ordeal. She stayed living in their home in Ancaster because that is where she feels Tim's presence the most. Dellen's girlfriend, Christina Nuga, who had been charged with accessory after the fact, took a plea deal where she pleaded guilty to obstructing justice and was sentenced to one day in custody, added to time served. According to Assistant Crown Attorney Craig Fraser, the family of Tim supported the plea deal. It saved them from having to sit through another trial. Ontario Superior Court of Justice Judge Tony Scarica told her, quote, You learn in life that when you keep company with bad people, and these people were beyond bad, they were evil, that when you keep company with people like that, bad things happen to you. The corollary is that if you keep company with good people, good things happen to you. I hope you conduct your future life in that way. There was evidence that was withheld from the jury, too. Character assassinations like Dellen's uncle calling him a sick, twisted prick or acquaintances saying the accused used drugs like heroin and cocaine. Also withheld was that there was a secret weapons compartment built into one of Dellen's trailers. But there were two key points that the jury never heard during the trial. And two points that I've kept quiet until now, as I wanted the focus of this episode to be on Tim Bosma. We're going to dive into those two key points in the next episode because they're worthy of their own time. The murder of Tim Bosma prompted law enforcement to look into two other cases, which made Dellen and Mark suspects in the murder of a woman 
that had gone missing in June 2012, less than a year before Tim was murdered. Her name was Laura Babcock. And after Dellen's arrest for Tim's murder, police decided to take a look at Wayne Millard's death. Dellen's father's death had initially been ruled a suicide, but now authorities weren't so sure. Coming up next on Method and Madness, the murder of Tim Bosma wasn't just a random killing, but the act of a serial killer. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. I really appreciate you. This is an independent podcast, so if you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. Take care of yourself. And for crisis support, text hello to 741-741.